Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined down the line from Prince Edward Island in Canada by Lawrence Krauss, the acclaimed theoretical physicist and best-selling science writer. Praised by Ian McEwan as one of our finest and most readable celebrators and explicators of science, Lawrence is the author of top-selling titles from The Physics of Star Trek to A Universe from Nothing. The recipient of numerous science awards for his breakthrough discoveries in areas such as dark energy, Lawrence served on President Obama's Science Policy Committee. An advocate for the greater use of science to stay policy decisions, Lawrence's latest book, The Known Unknowns, tackles five fundamental mysteries at the forefront of science today. Lawrence, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot. So the five fundamental mysteries of science, uh, time, space, matter, life and consciousness, we could... We could do a three-hour podcast on this, but I mean, uh, tell us what was the genesis for the book. You know, I've been I, I've been thinking about books after my book, A Universe from Nothing, which which had a big impact. But um, my British publisher actually was the genesis. They were the same people who published my last book, The Physics of Climate Change, in in the UK, head of Zeus, and the and the publisher, uh, you know, started talking to me about about the known unknowns. I love the sentence. I love the phrase, even though the phrase comes from a famous quote by Donald Rumsfeld, an American evil politician. And uh, in fact, that's the reason that in the US, the book isn't called The Known Unknowns. They decided it was too provocative, called The Edge of Knowledge there. But it really is important that that um, that there's a distinction between what you know you don't know and what you don't know you don't know, as, as Donald Rumsfeld talked about. And, and when he, talking about it, about sort of, initially the idea was sort of 20 or 30, important questions and but the 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 notion that really grabbed me is for a long time i've said and i still feel that the three most important words in science are i don't know that 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 the willingness to recognize that you don't know things is is incredibly important it would be much society would be much better off if more of us use that in 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 the common sense but at the same time you know i've written a lot about the universe and, and and how we've come to know what we know but the edge of knowledge is so interesting because it's really where where almost anything goes. But to get there, you have to understand the context of how we got there. What really attracted me was that these are fundamental questions that everyone has. has. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a scientist to have questions. Are we alone in the universe? How did life originate? How did the universe begin? All of these basic questions, can, you know, can, what is time? Can you go backwards in time? All of the kind of questions that people ask are really questions that are really at the forefront of science. And I, I was enamored with the idea of trying to trying to tackle them. And it took me a long time to, to figure out how to frame it. And that's what, eventually I decided those five major, major categories, time, space, matter, uh, life and consciousness are really the forefronts of the biggest, the biggest questions. There, there could be other areas as well, but of course, uh, Three of them are, are closely related to physics, and the other two are less closely related to physics. But interestingly enough, as I as I try and talk about in terms of the origin of life, in fact, a lot of the early work that spurred the, the development of genetics, in fact, was done by physicists. And the questions about consciousness, the, the, the fundamental challenges to understanding consciousness are oddly similar to the fundamental challenges of understanding our universe itself, because, or even what's outside our universe, because in a sense, in consciousness, we we're stuck with the fact that we live in our, inside our own bodies, and and our perceptions of our consciousness are always subjective. At the same time, we can never enter anyone else's consciousness to try and study it. And those challenges are somewhat similar to the challenges we face when we try and understand the beginning of the universe or the universe on the larger scales. And and for me, it's all, also I realize it's a long answer to question, but nevertheless, I'll continue. The other thing I try to do in each of my books. It's easy to write the same book over and over again, and I, I know a number of people who do that uh, who will remain unnamed. But in each of my books, I try and touch on things where, you know, where I may have some expertise, but but will push me, will, which will force me to learn a lot. And and so in each book, there's always some different things. And I've, I've read a lot about consciousness, but I really figured this would force me to do a, a more in-depth um, dive into that region. And as far as the origin of life concerned, I've actually run some meetings on that, and, and it was... I really wanted to update myself on, on where the situation was. So I hope these are questions that everyone will resonate with. And it gives me a hook 
to bring people up to the edge. Because as I say, to understand the questions, what we, what we know we don't know, you really have to get some sense of what we know. Well, there you go. That was a long answer. Uh, well, look, I'm on every week. This podcast is about you. And I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm a science nut. I hated science at school. It was about, we had bad teachers. It was about memorizing the periodic. Yeah, that's and... right. I, you know, that's the problem. I've always said that t- teachers should not do that, 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 that in, in class, teachers should be excited about saying, I don't know, because it, then it's a voyage of discovery. As I say in the book, it's an invitation to discover. And every science class should be an invitation to discover and not rote memorization. That's probably one of the reasons why I didn't go into biology. My mother wanted me to be a doctor. And when I was younger, I, I thought I would be. But when I was taking biology, and that was a long time ago, it was memorizing the parts of a frog. And 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 it had no interest to me whatsoever. So I eventually got much more enamored with, with sort of the fundamental questions that physics offered um, an opportunity to explore. I've become a science nut. I've read hundreds of books, including some from your good self and watched all of the documentaries because it is about celebrating the unknown, isn't it? The scientific method is about truth. It's about saying, look, we don't know what time is. Let's start to get a theory together and see what the evidence matches. And I like how it's the opposite of religion. We have an origin uh, story in science, do we not? That the universe came into existence out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago, but we we test it. We don't just say, well, that's the, the sacred word. We look for the cosmic microwave background radiation to prove it. And if it doesn't match our theory, we change the theory. Exactly. We change our minds. And that's the big difference between science and religion. Religion tends to be about having the answers when you don't even know what the questions are. Whereas science is about asking the questions and hoping to search for the answers. And as you say, be willing to change your mind and being willing to to accept that you're wrong. And which is the actually for me, as I often say, the the one of the most exciting things about being a scientist is 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 being wrong, because then it means there's a whole new world uh, out there. And and um, of course, one of the ways you become well known as a scientist is prove your colleagues wrong. But even so, I mean, the great, it's great when the universe surprises us. As, as I've often said, the, the imagination of the universe is far greater than the imagination of human beings, which is why we have to keep looking. We can't just sit in rooms theorizing. We have to keep looking with our telescopes and our accelerators and everything else, every other way we can probe the universe because it keeps surprising us. And every time we think we've got a handle on it, it opens up to a new sort of chapter of the unknown. I mean, Newton thought we explained gravity. There was this tiny problem with Mercury's orbit. Then Einstein comes along with his general theory of relativity. That seems to explain everything. Now we can't seem to reconcile that with quantum physics, which is the most proven thing in science. Uh, they can't mm-hmm. both be right. It's fascinating, is it not? It, it is fascinating. And and uh, as I like to say, it's kind of cosmic job security. But I tend to think that every time we come up with a new answer to things, it, it raises more questions. And the great physicist, Richard Feynman, used to argue that he, he didn't really care whether, he didn't he wasn't looking for a theory of everything. He thought maybe, you know, you could think of the universe as like an onion. And each time you discover something new, you peel back a, a new layer, but there could be many, could be an infinite number of layers. And it didn't matter to him. He just wanted to know more the next day than he did the day before. And, and, and uh, you know, there's great interest lately in uh, having a theory, what they used to call a theory of everything. And I think that that notion is a little misplaced. I doubt we'll have one. But secondly, even if we had a theory of quantum gravity, it's not a theory of everything. It's really a theory of two very important things, the beginning of the universe and the center of black holes. But for most of the rest of the universe, you don't need a theory of quantum gravity to understand how water boils. But but that notion that every day there's something new to see, and I don't see any limits. People often ask me, what are the limits? And we and maybe there are limits to our understanding, and maybe there are fundamental limits to science, but we haven't encountered them. We come up with roadblocks, but we, there's no evidence that there's some fundamental obstacle to understanding anything, which is truly remarkable. It's it's the thing that Einstein said most amazed him about the universe, that it was comprehensible. It's fascinating, isn't it? A lot of physicists have this phrase, shut up and calculate, don't they? So instead of sort of getting into the woo-woo bits of quantum physics, they say, look, we understand that GPS needs relativity. We know the maths. Let's just get on with it. Yeah, usually it's applied to quantum mechanics. And I sympathize because... A lot of people get hooked up in these weird philosophical debates about quantum mechanics, when in fact quantum mechanics is a well-defined theory that allows you to work with, well, it's a set, you know, everything we're using to talk today relies on quantum mechanics, semiconductors and transistors. But there are fundamental, interesting sort of conceptual questions with regard to quantum mechanics, but, and, and they relate to things we, we do understand or that understanding is emerging. 
um, e even in the even in the difficult areas. And I actually spend a, a fair amount of time in the book talking about quantum mechanics because I get frustrated with the woo woo, not just the pseudoscience woo woo of oh the secret and all sorts of other nonsense books, but even by scientists who like to I think make themselves I don't know why they do when they write whole books upon you know the many universe theory of, of, of quantum mechanics which is really a, a classical kludge that's put together to try and picture what's actually happening in quantum mechanics but as I point out and I really was learned this from a colleague of mine a late colleague of mine at Harvard Sidney Coleman who was brilliant who really said the important thing is not the interpretation of quantum mechanics, because the world is really is really fundamentally quantum mechanical. The classical world we see is, is, is this approximation to the real world. So you don't want to explain the real world in terms of the approximation. You want to explain how you get that approximation from the real world. So the, the, what we should be talking about is the interpretation of classical mechanics. We, it's weird how in other areas, we don't, you know, even in general relativity, we don't say we have to understand general relativity in classical terms of Newton. We understand that, you know, curved space is a is a it concept is that is. is part of Newtonian theory, and we need to we need to use curved space to understand general relativity. Similarly, in quantum mechanics, there are things that are simply not classical. And yeah, we can present all these weird, as I say, kludges, all these weird approximations that make quantum mechanics seem weirder than it might actually be, without with, without understanding that you know the world isn't classical. And if you're gonna describe it in these classical terms, you're always going to come up with something that seems weird action at a distance or, 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 you know, as Einstein said, spooky action at a distance or something like that. I mean, they do blow our minds and they, they can be quite woo woo. I agree, but they're again, you know, talk to, well, if he was around, talk to Fritz Zwicky, you know, you look at the way that a galaxy uh, spins, it doesn't mm -hmm. spin according to the way that it should be. And that's why it essentially we have uh, postulated dark matter. I mean, why is that? Why are galaxies flying away from us at an increased speed? Where's that energy come from? What, I mean, dark energy, I don't even know what the hell that is. You know, the, the classical model. <laughs> you're not alone, by the way, none of us, and I was one of the people who proposed it, but I don't know what the hell it is either. But like you look at the standard model, all of other physics we know represents sort of 3% of the mass energy density of the universe. What the hell is the rest of it? Yeah, I, and that's a great question. I mean, that's occupied me for most of my career, trying to understand, predict what the dark matter that dominates the mass of galaxies is and figure out ways to detect it. And then, as I say, it turned out in 1995, we argued against all reason, but based on evidence, that maybe most of the mass of the universe wasn't even, or most of the energy in the universe wasn't residing in mass at all, but in this kind of dark energy. And then three years later, they discovered that to be the case. I have to say that when we proposed it, I didn't even really believe it. It was the only way to explain the data, but I kind of felt some of the data was wrong. Well, I keep going back to the fact maybe we haven't fully understood gravity. Maybe, as you were saying about that onion, maybe there's levels to gravity that we haven't yet comprehended, and maybe dark energy and dark matter don't exist. It's just that we haven't got gravity right. Well, some, you know, there's some. There's a lot of well, there are a number, not a lot, but there are a number of physicists who take that route to explain dark matter and dark energy. Maybe gravity on large scales is different. Well, I'm glad people are looking at that route, but I think it's less well motivated then the likelihood that dark matter is a new type of elementary particle and and dark energy is the ener simply the energy of empty space which is allowed in quantum mechanics and the reasons for that is that it's not just that dark matter changes the way galaxies rotate on large scales if that were it well that'd be one thing but we, it turns out we need new elementary particles beyond those of protons and neutrons electrons etc we need particles that don't interact except gravitationally in order to understand how galaxies formed in the first place. Moreover, if you look at the standard model, every effort to go beyond the standard model to understand the puzzles in the standard model, some of which I talk about in the book, every such effort tends to predict particles which can be naturally dark matter candidates. So there's lots of other good motivated reasons to imagine that dark matter is made of a new type of elementary particle. It's not just showing how that maybe galaxy rotation curves would be different if you change gravity, you still have to explain how galaxies formed because there doesn't seem to have been enough time in the history of the universe for galaxies to have formed if normal matter is all there is. Because normal matter early on in the universe is affected by radiation and gravity can't cause things to collapse because that radiation gets in the way. And only after matter became neutral could it could begin to collapse. And that was fairly late in the history of the universe. And, and there just hasn't been enough time 
given gravity, if things started that late, for galaxies and stars and planets to form, you need something that was able to collapse early on that didn't interact with radiation, and dark matter fits the bill for that. So there's lots of independent reasons. It's not as if we just jump into these what may sound wild conjectures uh, willingly. We're, we're generally dragged kicking and screaming to them. Same with dark energy. I mean, we most people, when we first proposed it, thought it was ridiculous. And, you know, it was ultimately related to the what's called the cosmological constant, which Einstein first proposed and then tried to get rid of, said it was his biggest blunder. We should all be so lucky, actually, because, uh, it, you know, it looks like that's what, what, what is responsible for this dark energy. And most people thought the idea was was crazy. And then the observations implied it was there. And moreover, it wasn't just the observations applied the, due to the fact that the un- expansion of the universe is accelerating the dark energy. It turns out there were other reasons, as we had argued five years earlier or three years earlier. We know the universe is, is flat or relatively flat on scales that we can see. We can measure that. Yet, when we add up all the matter in the universe, we're, we're, we're off by a factor of three. And it turns out, when you measure the expansion rate of the universe due to what we think is dark energy, the amount of dark energy you need is exactly what was missing to reconcile the flatness of the universe with the amount of matter we see. So there are a lot of different directions that point us it towards the same place. And that's why, that's why it's become what you might call a standard model of cosmology, not just because we love to postulate new things we don't understand. When I used to study science at school, which I, I hated, I could have easily told you what time was. You know, there's a clock. That's one of your your first fundamental mysteries. Now, having read a dozen science books, including your own, I can't explain what time is. Clearly, <laughs> it's a function of the second law of thermodynamics. There seems to be some, you know, a function of entropy. We have the fact that it can be mitigated and changed by speed and relativity and even gravity. But what the hell is it? Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, the point, you know, in fact, as I point out, there are people who argue that time itself is an illusion, and maybe in some in some very abstract way it is. But I don't find I'm I'm kind of a pedestrian scientist. Uh, I'm motivated by by um, Einstein in the sense of what what you know, science is what you can measure, and and operational principles matter. And so for me, maybe in some grand scheme, time is an illusion, but. That doesn't make much difference when you're late for the 517 train to get home and the door closes just before you arrive at the train. Time really matters then. And so it's true that time is very intoxicatingly mysterious. And, and I think probably the greatest mystery of time is the fact that, well, if relativity, and it does, merges space and time, both special and general relativity, then there's this fundamental apparent difference between space and time. I can go on a round trip to London and back, which I'll do next month or in a little over a month. And you're very welcome. But I can't, I can't do a round trip in time, though. Well, and, and, and the, the arrow of time is, of course, th- th- that mystery because it we seem to be able to travel in time, but only in one direction. Yeah, and, and, and it's frustrating for many people. They'd love to go back in time for either to avoid the errors of their youth or repeat them. Uh, but what's weird here is that general relativity actually allows for backward time travel in principle. It allows, the way general relativity works is if you can write down a mathematical property of the right kind of energy and and momentum, you can produce any kind of space you want, including spaces that allow for time, backward time travel. The key question is, are there other physical reasons why, even if you can write it down mathematically, you can't create it physically? And that remains an open question. Um, Although we think the answer is no, you know, in my old, an old book of mine, uh, The Physics of Star Trek, which my, my late friend Stephen Hawking wrote the foreword for, Stephen said that time travel is impossible because if it were possible, we'd already be inundated by tourists from the future. I countered him by saying that they all went back to the 1960s and no one noticed. Well, yeah, rightly so. I mean, I'm really enjoying this, Lawrence. Uh, I wish this was, you know, a five-hour podcast. Let's just go through the other four if we can, because I've got so much to discuss with you. Uh, I mean, I I was about to say we've done time. Of course, we haven't. That in itself could be six hours. But um, the next one is space. What's the mystery of space? Well, there are a bunch of mysteries. First of all, you know, one big one now is, is our universe all there is? Is our universe infinite? Um, And of course, the other thing is, how did it originate? How did space originate? And another big mystery of late, which is which has captured a lot of attention because there's been so much attention on black holes, is what happens to space inside of a black hole? What, what that singularity? Is it a, 
Is it a portal to another universe? Lots of people ask these kind of questions. And, and this notion that, that has changed since I was a student. When I was a student, universe meant something. It meant, it meant everything. The universe was everything, all of space. But again, we've kind of got a, a, more, a definition that's more operational. Because really, if you think about what's relevant to us is the, that region of space which we can one day communicate with or could one day have communicated with. If there's regions of space we could never, ever interact with, then in some sense, they're really not a part of our universe. And we, we now, our current physics models suggest that it's quite likely that they're not only some, but vast regions of space, perhaps an infinite number of them have infinitely big of regions that we can't communicate with in which the laws of physics may be different. And again, we're not inventing that because it sounds fun. In fact, most originally physicists hated the idea, but we're inventing it because our best models for trying to understand the early history of our universe also generally predict that there are other such universes. So the notion that you know our universe is all there is is now kind of passe, and we often talk of a multiverse. And, and, and it gets criticized, I often note, especially by religious people who say, well, that's our version of God, but it's not. We, we didn't invent it because it, it solved the problem. We, we, we were driven to it by, by the physics that we are trying to understand. But no, no, I think that's a, those are the you know, big questions. How do, how, do our, how do we get, well, I spent a whole book on my book, A Universe from Nothing, talked about one version, and I update it a little bit in this book. You know, how did our space and time and everything in the universe arise from and what's amazing is it could arise from nothing without violating any laws of physics. But trying to picture that earliest moment and what it means is uh, is something that still mystifies physicists because we don't really yet have a theory. We have plausible ideas, but we don't have a theory of quantum gravity, which, as I said earlier in the podcast, is what we really need to understand the beginning of our universe. Well, we're getting clues, aren't we? If you look at vacuum energy, if you look at virtual particles, the uh, standard model already allows for particles to come into existence from nothing. And then as long as they return to nothing reasonably quickly, that, that's clearer yeah. than we can suppose, but it, it's real. Oh, it's real. I talk about it a lot in, 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 in that book, Universe of Nothing. Absolutely. The fact that we, what we mean by nothing has changed. And so, that upsets some people, but I call it learning. The point is that empty space is not empty. It's full of these virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence on timescales so short we can't see them. But what's really interesting is in certain circumstances, virtual particles that quantum mechanics allows to pop into existence from nothing can have zero total energy, in which case they can actually continue to exist forever. They don't violate any any uh, rules of energy and conservation or momentum conservation. and under certain situations that can happen. In fact, that's essentially related to the reason that black holes radiate radiation, the so-called Hawking radiation, for precisely that reason. Once you add gravity, things become a little weirder because gravity can allow negative energy and therefore you can create a particle with positive energy and one with negative energy and the two energies can add up to zero and then you don't violate anything if they continue to exist. Well, the same thing is true for universes. If universes could pop into existence, if space and time are quantum objects, if we have a quantum theory of gravity, you can, space times themselves could pop into existence and most of them will pop out of existence equally quickly. But if you, if you have a space time with zero total energy, it can persist indefinitely. And, and once again, if you, you, if you ask what, what would such a universe look like if it could last 13.8 billion years, and it, well, the answer is it would look just like the universe in which we live. And, and that's highly suggestive that perhaps our universe uh, popped into existence from nothing. And, and, but the, but the, the fact that virtual particles do that, and, and, and even though we can't measure them directly, it's not like counting angels on the head of a pin because we can look at their indirect effects and we can actually calculate their indirect effects. And those calculations produce the most accurate predictions in all of physics. So we need to, they, not only do we know they're there, but if we didn't, insert their effects into the equations, uh, we get the wrong answers And when compared with experiment. And so these are esoteric ideas, but they're no, by no means speculative. They are the basis of the best predictions we can make in quantum physics of the spectrum of hydrogen and other atoms. 
but we're testing it evidentially. We're not suggesting that that's it, that we've got the answer. I mean, not to make this podcast about criticizing religion, but they would say, oh, you can't have an uncaused cause. That's ridiculous. And then, of course, whatever their God is that created the universe is in itself an uncaused cause. And that, they don't seem to recognize how ridiculous that is. At least we're well, testing and trying to find through evidence and reason uh, whether it, we're right. Yeah, and, it, and we're not begging that key question. I mean, as you, as you point out, the uncaused cause, it upsets people. They say everything that every effect has a cause. Well, that's true, but that's classical intuition. And that's the intuition of our experience. But the world is science has taught us that the world is far broader than our classical intuition. And, and while it's a nice guide for maybe how to operate here on Earth, it's not a nice guide to figure out how the universe operates. Quantum mechanics doesn't operate by classical intuition. And the fact it's true that we will have to vastly change, for example, it's quite possible that time had a beginning. Okay, the time arose and it didn't exist before that instant when it arose. I was going to say before even using the words, the language fails me because before makes it seem like there was a before. But if there was no before, then there can be no cause, right? It's just simply an effect. And that means we have to change the way we think about things. And, and that's hard to do. And and, it's, and, it, and we haven't yet been able to develop a theory that does it adequately, perhaps. But the fact that it's hard to do does not mean it's wrong. The universe doesn't exist so that we can be find easy answers or that we can be happy. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people, I think, think that that somehow we're the center of the universe. And if we can't, uh, if it doesn't, if it doesn't be sensible to us, it can't happen. And and the great thing about science is it's taught us to think beyond that kind of cosmic solipsism and have a kind of humility. Most people don't think of science as humble, but it is ultimately humble because it's it's suggesting that perhaps the universe wasn't made for us. And it's about evidence and reason. That's what makes you know excites me. That, and that's you hit it, evidence and reason. And moreover, constant questioning. So your evidence and reason lead you to this idea, but the idea may not be right. And so you better test it and you'd be willing to throw it out like yesterday's newspaper if it's wrong. What got me started on my science, uh, love of science, many, many years ago after school was someone asked me how a plane flew and I didn't know. I mean, that, there's a pilot in the front of the plane and it's something that I think the jet propels us forward. But, and that shamed me because I actually thought, why why does a plane fly? And I, I ought to know that. And, and now, of course... I've read so many books on it, and you get a bit zen on it, don't you? Because if you ask some of the top quantum physicists, they'd say, well, we don't actually know. Forget Bernoulli's principle and Newton's third law. That's all bunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there's a simple argument, like many things, there's a simple argument for why planes fly, but then when you look at the details, it gets more complicated. Uh, um, you know, the simple argument is, is this thing called Bernoulli's principle that ultimately says that if the wing is shaped in a certain way, the air over the top has to move faster than the air over the bottom, and that produces a pressure differential that lifts the plane. It sounds good, but there, there are lots of subtleties of that that have to be explored. It reminds me of a, another example, which is <laughs> profound, that Newton you know, was the first person to explain the tides because of the moon. And, and, I, and I remember thinking blithely, yeah, I understand. I saw Newton's picture, and I understand why there are two tides a day and such. But then one day I was giving a lecture on, I had I was going to Cambodia and, and Vietnam to, to visit the Mekong Delta because of the worries about climate change. And I brought people and I was I said I'd give a lecture on tides because the Mekong Delta has only one tide a day. And that puzzled me. And then when I started to look into it, I realized like many things, they're much more subtle uh, arguments. It's fascinating how even this, what may seem like the simplest thing when you investigate it, always new questions arise. Another one that I remember Feynman looked at too, which is the cause of lightning. And, and you know, again, you can come up with simple arguments, but then they, when you look at those simple arguments, they break down at some level and you have to ask yet deeper questions. It's kind of fun how, as I think Blake once said, you can see the universe in a grain of sand. The more deeply you explore anything, the more fascinating the questions become. My degree was originally in law, and I remember we studied the Theft Act 1968, which was defining the ingredients of theft. If you were going to go into a store and steal a sandwich, you intended to do it, you walk out with a sandwich, etc. But people were getting away with, uh, frankly, defrauding their local utility companies and stealing electricity. And because mm -hmm. several people in court argued that electricity didn't exist, they couldn't be charged with the theft of it. <laughs> that was the first <laughs> time I ever... So the 1978 Theft Act, 10 years later, 
came up with a new offence, which is the abstraction of electricity, which had to be defined to, to cope with the fact that people can make the case that electricity doesn't exist. Lawrence, how could I steal something that doesn't exist? Well, you know, again, I guess I'm not sympathetic. If you argue that electricity doesn't exist, doesn't exist, then you must not have lights in your house. Or I mean, it's, it's like it's like people who argue the Earth is six thousand years old. Well, don't turn on your kettle because the basic physics that tells you how your kettle works is. I think they were trying to, to be facetious by saying it was sort of free movement of electrons rather than like a process rather than a thing. Oh well, okay. I mean, you could argue that they don't understand what it is, but once again. And unfortunately, this is a religious thing. Not understanding something is not the same as either the existence of God or its non-existence at all. The so-called uh, God of the gaps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's a v- argument that theologians realize is very, very unfortunate because because the gaps inevitably get filled, and then what happens to God? I, I agree. I mean, so I mean, as I say, there's so much we could talk about. We've done time. We've done space. Tell us what what's the big fundamental mystery of matter. Well, you know, there I could I've written books in some sense, so it was hard to 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 restrict ourselves to it. But but you know why you know why does matter exist is one big question. Why is the universe made of matter instead of antimatter or equal amounts of matter and antimatter? Why why is matter the way it is? Why are the four forces the way they are? And then the final question, which is the one we I alluded to earlier, which I think is one I really wanted to address because I don't see it addressed correctly in most books, is why. Does quantum mechanics govern the behavior of matter at very small scales? And what what weirdness is it to, you know, you hear matter is made of waves and that the particles at the same time. And I wanted to try and give some basic arguments about what the fundamental principles of quantum mechanics are and and what they imply compared to what we measure. And then to point out that some people are still willing to question whether quantum mechanics is fundamental. And those people aren't crackpots. They include at least two Nobel Prize winners I know of in physics, who at least at one point or another have asked themselves the question, could there be some fundamental theory that gets away from the quantum weirdness? One was the late Steven Weinberg. Another is uh, one of the more brilliant theoretical physicists of the last 50 years, uh, Gerard Tuft, uh, a Dutch physicist who won the Nobel Prize for helping, as Weinberg did, put together the standard model of particle physics. And Gerard, I think, is still convinced that he can come up with something that replaces quantum mechanics. And to give a little plug to um, someone from from uh, your side of the pond there, uh, uh, Tim Palmer is a is a, a well-known British physicist who's, who's known for his work in climate change and meteorology. And I just had a podcast with him and reviewed his book. And he's convinced he has another idea for how to get rid of quantum mechanics having to do with chaos. And so the, the case is not closed yet. Quantum mechanics is weird. It works. But maybe, maybe there's something maybe even more weird that that from which it emerges. So it's those natures of understanding what why the universe we see is made of the things that, that it's made of. And, you know, most people may not wake up in the morning asking why is the universe made of matter. Uh, but in fact, it's one of, it's probably the question that changed modern physics more than anything else. It turned me and others into physicists who studied cosmology because you know, it seems like an obvious thing to say the universe has made a matter, but but in a fundamental sense, there, it turns out matter and antimatter are largely indistinguishable. They behave the same. Every particle in nature generally has an antiparticle that can exist. Why, when we look out, do we only see particles and not antiparticles for the most part? And the answer is that requires us to go back to the earliest moments in the history of the universe and come up with an idea that I, and I talk about it at length. It was taking that question seriously that caused particle physicists first to ask questions about the early universe. And that's opened up a vast, that's opened up all of modern cosmology and astrophysics, uh, that question. We still don't have an answer. We have good ideas about what we think the answer might be, but we still don't know. And that's what makes it exciting. I was chatting with my friend who's a, who isn't into science the other day, who's talking into a juicy steak, and I was explaining mass energy equivalence equals MC squared and all of that. And he said, well, what does that mean in real life for me? And I sort of oversimplified and said, that steak you're talking into now used to be sunlight. Photons uh, were turned into sugars and oxygen with combined with carbohydrates by a plant, which was then eaten by a cow, which you're now eating. That used to be sunlight. It blew his mind. Yeah, no, here, tell him this one, if you want to blow his mind, that when you look out at the sun um, and you see the light coming from the sun, well, many people may know that it takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to the earth. That's 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 just the fact that the earth is far away from the sun. It's eight but, light minutes away. 
eight light minutes away or, or in, a, in a more obscure set of units, 93 million miles, the units that you use to or get one AU, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But probably when you're talking to a policeman who's talking about your speed on, in London and when you've been speeding, probably or, don't. Or get a charging with abstraction of electricity. <laughs> yeah. But um, but that's not the weird thing. I mean, that's weird enough. But weirder is, it, let me ask you this question. Uh, do you know how long it takes light? The you know, light is created by the energy released by nuclear reactions in the core of the sun. Do you know how long it takes for the photons that basically are, are part of the products of that energy production in the center of the sun to get to the outside? Now, I did read about this many years ago, so I'm aware that it's like millions of years, isn't it? It's well, it's, all, it's about it's, almost a million years. It's yeah, almost you think it's like years. a second, but it isn't, of course. It has to slowly yeah, exactly. work its way It's like a second. It's almost a million years. It's one of the arguments I use against young Earth creationists when they say the Earth is 6,000 years old. I say, if, it, if the sun were 6,000 years old, it wouldn't be shining like it is now. <laughs> well, I mean, and I was going to ask you about this later, but you, you mentioned it there. I mean, I've, I've known Professor Dawkins for many, many years, and he has a great phrase. He says, you can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason themselves into. You know, is it just ultimately futile trying to reason with people who, who you know, can't be reasoned with, frankly? Well, look, I think in some sense it is, but I think there are other ways. And as a teacher, look, I've learned that there's an illusion to teaching. I never really think I teach. I motivate people to learn, but I'm not sure I actually ever teach. But one way I can motivate them to learn is by having them confront their own misconceptions. So I think that's probably one of the only ways to internalize things. So, yeah, I can't tell someone, look, you're, you know, I, I can't. And I used to debate this with Richard a long time ago. I can't, you can't tell someone you're stupid and expect them to listen to you and you can't and i can't convince someone who who thinks the earth is six thousand years old that it isn't just by telling them they're wrong what or even telling them the evidence that uh, that i might like that it isn't the way i really do it is by confront their own misconceptions saying okay if it were six thousand years old what would that imply and let's let's work through some of that and then when people confront their own misconceptions then maybe and maybe it's, it's still not guaranteed, but then maybe there's a hope that people will change their minds. Just for sport, though, I uh, hugely regret the, the passing of uh, of the late, great Christopher Hitchens. And I still watch on YouTube now him basically taking apart people like Sean Hannity and idiots, <laughs> uh, you know, just the sheer wit with which he does it. Yeah. He sort of punched the air with excitement. He, yeah, he was a it was a great loss for man when he died. I remember the day he died and I, I was with him shortly before. And, and I remember the day he died, I actually went on a TV program to talk about him, CNN, with some absurd journalist. Anyway, I won't go into that. But I remember thinking, and I don't want this to sound presumptuous because I don't mean it that way, that I, I remember thinking at that time, I'm going to do what I can in the smallest way I can to keep not just his memory alive, but but the memory of the things he, he, he worked for to be alive. So I'm no Christopher Hitchens, and I don't really know anyone who is but we can all contribute a little bit and it, and, and and i and i i was fortunate enough to to speak at his memorial service and or to be asked to speak at his memorial service that's what's fortunate and i i said which is kind of true you know how people often say what you know what would jesus do and i often think to myself what would christopher do <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. We'd never know, but uh, I never. Yeah, I mean, never but it, but but it helps frame my, when I think about an argument. When I see something in the press that's ridiculous, or a movement that's ridiculous, and there's so many things going on today that are literally ridiculous, I sometimes ask myself, how would Christopher have responded, as a way to maybe guiding what my response might be. Well, I mean, we've spoken there who's someone who sadly passed and is now dead, which brings me to the next fundamental mystery, which is life. I mean, yeah. I had Carl Zimmer um, on the podcast a couple of months yeah. ago, and he again, he was fascinating. And he said, rather like you were saying earlier, that, that we have a, an obsession with trying to sort of particularize and define what life is and reduce it to a set of attributes. And he was basically saying, why should we? What, what is it? So, I mean, in terms of how you framed it for the book, in what way is life a fundamental mystery for you? Well, you know, uh, and in fact, I, I just, I, I will put a little plug because I just, um, an excerpt from the book just came out in the, in the online um, magazine Quillette. And the very first question is, what is life? It may sound, again, trivial. Just someone the other day was asking her on a podcast as if it was obvious, and it's not. Trying to define life itself is is a little slippery. I, I, I as I as I talk about in the book, if you if you say well life is something you know like that has a 
that reproduces faithfully and has a metabolism, you know, burns energy to do it, etc. Well, that sounds okay, but then as I point out, well, is fire life then? Because fire kind of reproduces, you know, a forest fire will reproduce faithfully if it if there's lungs or trees to be consumed and it has a metabolism and and one could argue, and obviously I think most people would say fire isn't life, but so you have to be a little more careful. And it turns out one of the key factors is what we call homeostasis, the ability to control that fire is uncontrolled, right? It's uncontrolled burning. And, and, and I think one of the nice ways to describe life is kind of controlled burning. If life is somewhere between oxidization, which is rust, if you wish, and burning, it's, it's life uses the energy you get from oxidizing, but in a controlled way. And, and of course, combined with membranes and a, and a, and a genetic code to reproduce faithfully. And, but even that sort of, you know, gets us into thinking about how did that kind of situation arise? So the big questions are what is life? But the big, biggest question of all is how did life begin? And, and while Darwin certainly answered the question, how did the diversity of life on earth arise, which was a big mystery, as he pointed out himself, it didn't address the question at all is how did life originate? In fact, he, he, there's, a, there's a phrase in his book that always amuses me. He says, well, you know, we just as so know about how life originated as we know about how matter originated, as if we'd never know either. And, and of course, we now are working on how matter originated. And as I talk about, there's a lot of interesting work that's changed our picture of how a physical a chemical process could naturally produce what seems to be this ultimately remarkable complexity that is life, RNA and DNA and the remarkable things that that the remarkable chemical reactions that, that life has to have occurring billions of times a second in order for, for, for modern life to exist. And so I talk about some of those recent developments, but we still don't have the fundamental answer. It is one of the questions that I, I, I think, I like to think may be answered in, in my lifetime. We'll see. But then even if we know that, well, that's just one kind of life. The big question we also have, every one of who look, especially if you don't live in a city and you look up at night and actually see stars, all of us have asked ourselves the question, are we alone? Is life on Earth here all there is? And as Carl Sagan once said, if it is, it'd be an awful waste of space. And, and of course, that question leads us to a whole, even a broader set of questions. What kind of life can exist? What, you know, is, does life have to be like the life we see, DNA-based, or could there be other things? And then the ultimate question is, what's the future of life? Well, you know, sure, we on Earth may be smart enough to survive even the ultimate catastrophes, like our sun becoming a red giant or, or things like that. But, and, you know, I'm doubtful, but maybe hopeful is another way of putting it. But then the question still is, well, if there's life in the universe, will life persist forever? Can, you know, there are all these wonderful questions that allow you to talk about aliens and life and things that I like to talk about. And some, and one of which I, I'm happy to say I, I I had the really remarkable experience of having a long-term, I was going to say debate, it was sort of a debate, but it was a discussion with Freeman Dyson, who was one of the more brilliant physicists I've been fortunate enough to know, about the ultimate future of life in our universe, and I described that in, in the book a little bit. I'm fascinated by life. I mean, you, as you were saying there, you take it back to that that first cell, so-called Luca, last universal common ancestor. Yeah. But was there a case of affairs, a moment when it wasn't alive, to then when it was? And that fascinates me. Another yeah, well, thing, I mean, and that's the big question, you know, and, and that's what someone asked me. How can you tell the difference between a cell that's alive and one that isn't? Well, it wasn't quite a cell. The big often misconception, even when it comes to evolution, is that is that cellular function parts of the cell that function have always functioned that way and that's just not the way it works in evolution often the precursors the building blocks did something quite different you know and, and so you know there's these mysteries that that the the creationists like to use all the time of something called a bacterial flagellum which is a little molecular motor that looks like it should be impossible they say well how could that have 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 just evolved that seems crazy but the parts of the bacterial flagellum you can show all of those have precursor roles in earlier systems doing something different. And, and it's not as if there was a, a cell one day that was alive and, and, the, and one day that wasn't alive and next day was. The, the parts of the, the cell could have functioned differently. And there's this big debate. It's again, like a, the chicken and egg debate, you know, and this, it mimics the debate that, that often happened in ancient Greece where 
people thought the fundamental materials were air, earth, fire, and water. And there were debates for hundreds of years of which was more fundamental, air, earth, fire, or water. And each time someone came up with one, it's like that game rock, paper, scissors. Someone else would come and say, no, no, there's a reason you need the other one. And it's similarly the case with replication and genetics and metabolism and membranes. Uh, all of those are different components of, of what are essentially part of every modern cell. And, and people often say, which came first? Did the membranes come first or would the, and enzymes? Did the enzymes come first or did the metabolism or did the, the, the genetic code? And what's quite likely is that they're all related, is that you can't, you can't make that kind of separation, that, that the physical processes that produced one, ultimately, you can often show are related because, you know, you need, you need proteins to make, you know, to, to, to make DNA. It turns out the membranes that you need all, also involve materials that are the basis of proteins and, and similarly metabolism. And so it's, it's a complicated system that evolves and, and evolves chemically until it begins to evolve biologically. And the key open question is, what is the chemistry? Can you show that there is natural progression of chemical evolution that's allowed thermodynamically that will produce the substructures that will come, come together and maybe accidentally produce a system that then is able to have the chemistry to reproduce and the genetic code to reproduce faithfully and the, and the proteins and enzymes that allow it to do it to exploit energy from the environment to do what it wants. And so it's, it's kind of interesting how, how the debate about the origin of life, as I say, mimics the debate about, um, about the origin of, of, you know, of the universe with earth, air, fire, and water. It's like nothing new under the sun. No, but you mentioned there about the conditions. It might not have needed to have been on our planet. It was the ancient Greeks that you referred to earlier that actually came up with this concept of panspermia. And it's perfectly plausible, is it not, that, it, it, that it, it, early it, life could it, have formed on Mars and then came here in space dust or a small meteorite. Yeah, yeah, but it, it is important that it begs the question. But you're right that, that panspermia, I think its most prominent proponent, distinguished proponent was Francis Crick, who was the first one of the people who, first, of course, discovered DNA. He argued that panspermia might might be true. And one of the reasons to argue in favor of it is that if you look at the evolution of life on Earth, it began about as early as it could have given the laws of physics. Uh, you know, there was a, a late early bombardment. There was a, a, a bombardment of the Earth with asteroids and meteors that would have vaporized the ocean, but that died down thanks to Jupiter over the course of about 100 million years. And within 100 or 200 million years of that, the earliest fossils appear to have existed on Earth, almost over 4 billion years old. So it sure looks like it was relatively easy in a cosmic sense for life to evolve on Earth. And that could be, there could be two answers to that. One is life is inevitable. It's easy in, in the right conditions to form. The other is, as, as Crick and others might've argued, well, maybe, maybe it didn't originate here. Maybe the real building blocks of life originated in an earlier system. It could be not just Mars, but maybe in an earlier, you know, planet somewhere that 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 got destroyed when there was a supernova and some of the materials traveled through interstellar space and managed to coalesce in our region of the universe. But it does beg the question, of course, okay, so even if spamdermia is true, you know, it, it is not like turtles all the way down. At some point, it had to evolve and somewhere, someplace. And what are the laws that allowed that? But but you did, you do raise an interesting question. And I, and I talk about that famous press conference, I think, with Clinton in, in 1996, where I think it was 96, there was a meteorite discovered uh, in Antarctica, a Martian meteorite, and some scientists sliced it carefully and saw what looked like fossils in it. And for a while, it looked like, indeed, one could show that there, there was life on Mars, and there was great excitement. It turned out to be wrong. But what it did demonstrate, especially that and the discovery of what are called extremophiles, which is that life can exist in even environments on Earth here that we never would have figured possible. Boiling water, acids, life seems to occupy every niche it can here on Earth. The outside of the International oh, Space Station is covered in time. Exactly, rivers. exactly. And, and so it's clear that if life did originate on Mars, for example, that it, microbes could certainly survive the 18-month to million-year voyage bet, you know, between Mars and Earth if they got knocked out of the, Mars by a meteorite impact or an asteroid impact. Um, that it could survive in interstellar space. So, so, and the fact that we discovered this Martian meteorite in Antarctica 
means that no planet is an island, that if, if there's life on one planet, it could easily pollute the other planets. And as a, a, a friend of mine, just a very distinguished paleobiologist and, and, and geologist, uh, Andrew Noel, once said, and he's involved in some of the missions that are looking for life on Mars. He said, if you discover life on Mars, what would surprise him the most is, is if it weren't our cousins. And so we, we need to look for other places where, where maybe where maybe a, a truly independent genesis of life occurred. And that's why we're thinking about going into the oceans under Europa or uh, Enceladus or where, where, you know, there's a layer of ice that probably has separated inner oceans, which we know exist there and uh, fr from the rest of the, the planetary environment. And if life is somehow discovered inside those oceans, it's quite likely more to be an independent genesis. And all of the, I mean, it's an exciting, exciting question. And, and what's, what really makes it even more exciting is we are doing experiments and potentially sending space missions to be able to answer those questions. And, and in the coming decades, we may, and that'll be remarkable. If we discover there's an independent genesis of life elsewhere on our planet, I mean, on our, in our solar system, well, that will imply that life is ubiquitous throughout the universe. And we've already discovered thousands of solar systems on, around other stars and that really would suggest that life is truly ubiquitous in the universe not in not intelligent life and that's the other big question but at least life and uh, that would change i think a, it would change a lot of people's picture of the universe perhaps and then of course the fundamental question is what is intelligence unique to us and and if it isn't how could we find it and you know those are all fascinating questions and fascinating questions to which we don't have the answer but which we're searching for the answer for, and that's the key point. I think the the five that you fundamental mysteries that you've cited get increasingly more difficult because you, we're at life, which is the the fourth one. Uh, just to finish off on the Martians coming to attack at some point, I always remember that episode of The Simpsons where Kent Brockman, the news anchor, says, "I want to be one of the first to welcome our new Martian overlords," and I, th I think <laughs> I also would do that. Um, but I just mind, <laughs> mindful of the fact we only have a few minutes left. Annoyingly, we we now get to the 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 the, the biggest stickler for me, which is consciousness itself. Um, yeah. I've read uh, quite a few books by the amazing Dan Dennett and, and mm -hmm. others. I, I It was one of these things where I thought, well, this is barely worth even discussing. And, and now, of course, my mind, if indeed it does exist, has been blown. Are we just mm -hmm. wet computers? Consciousness surely does not exist. We're just brain chemistry. Well, it I think it exists because of the evidence around Earth that conscious things produce with intent. Also, I'm looking out at, at a cabin outside my house, and I know that conscious being with intent produced it. But you're right, it, 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 it's the more, the questions are more difficult. And I often tell people when I'm in programs with them, you know, they talk about the weird, you know, quantum gravity and all the things I, I might work on. And they say, and I say truthfully, not facetiously, that that's the reason I'm a physicist, because it's so easy. Uh, you know, because we literally the questions of consciousness make the questions of physics look trivial. And at the same time, surprisingly, as I point out in that chapter, some of the obstacles to understanding consciousness are, are similar to the obstacles to understanding the beginning of the universe, you know, or whether there are other universes. We live in a, a one universe in this universe, and it's hard to therefore we're stuck with that fact that we live where we weren't there at the beginning, and we also aren't, aren't able to probe other universes. And when we think about consciousness, we're stuck with the fact that we ourselves live within our own consciousness. And as I describe, in, in the chapter, we can do tests to show that we fool ourselves about what, about our own consciousness all the time. But also at the same time, we're unable to enter the consciousness of others. And those, those produce fundamental obstacles to the science of consciousness. So I, I think I say at the, at the beginning of the chapter, someone pointed out to me once, that you can tell how much is known about a subject by how many books are written about it. The more books that are written, the less is known. And boy, there's a new book on consciousness every week. And, uh, and, you know, whereas all you need is sort of Paul Dirac's book on quantum mechanics, and you know about quantum mechanics, you don't have to keep rewriting it. And, but I think the reason for that is that it's so early in the game. And it's so early enough in the game that you mentioned Dan Dennett, that I point out that it's early enough that philosophers are making an impact. You know, in physics, philosophers aren't making an impact anymore because it's moved way beyond the early stages of sort of philosophical questions. Now physicists define the questions. But when we really don't understand something, Philosophers can do a great job in defining questions, in, 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 in framing the right kind of questions. And when you look at modern consciousness studies, people like Dennett and other people, Patricia Churchland and others, who are philosophers, are having 
in some sense, and much an impact on driving the field forward as a neurophysiologist and neuroscientist. Not not to say there's a tremendous amount of neuroscience that's been discovered in the last decades and, and it's still being discovered, amazing things about the brain, but still this fundamental notion of what is consciousness is that, you know, as hard as it is to define life, consciousness is so much harder. And as I point out, even consciousness, people who study it don't like to define it. You know, I, I move from there to, to, to a question that, because I, I think it, I think we will forever be limited. Uh, I, I, you know, there's a quote from Albert Einstein, I think in that beginning of that chapter that says something like, um, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And you, so you wonder, well, will we ever be able to solve the problem of consciousness when we're stuck in our own conscious beings? And one of the ways we might be able to is to take heed from another famous physicist, Richard Feynman, who said, if you can't build it, you don't understand it. And it could be that the ultimate way we might understand consciousness is by building conscious entities, which is, an, of course, an area of great controversy right now, AI, um, the concerns about what, how it might change our future. But it may be that the only way we'll really understand how some complicated system emerges that can be self-aware will be from artificial intelligence that we, if we it, 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 that becomes aware. Now, there are good arguments, by the way, to come back to the history of life. And I think really good arguments that part of our essential awareness, our self-awareness comes from our bodies, from the fact that we sense the outside environment and we need to deal with heat. We need to have homeostasis that allows us to, to, to live within that environment. And so it's been argued that you can't hope to have really self-aware artificial entities. If you want to call them artificial, I don't see them as being artificial in that sense, but um, without having sensory, essentially nerves and, and bodies, and it's all an open question, but it could be that the way we, we ultimately understand it is by, is by creating it. And will that creation lead to the end of our own consciousness? That's in some sense what I deal with at the end of the, at the end of the book before my epilogue. And because there's a lot of concern and fear of artificial intelligence and, you know, and there are some, some of it's rightly justified, but I think some of it is simply fear of the unknown. And the example that I most like is one I use in the, in the ninth century, I think in BC, um, the Phoenician alphabet was introduced into ancient Greece and uh, it evolved over the next few hundred years. And what's interesting is people like Plato and Socrates complained that writing would be the end of storytelling and communication because you wouldn't have to memorize things anymore and you wouldn't have to, to you know, to talk to someone face to face. But I think writing hasn't hurt. <laughs> and, and I kind of think of AI as, as the same thing. It's going to change the world, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the Borg or Transformers. It, it could just make, I wasn't going to say better, it might be better. It'd be different, but it may not be a dystopia. The best episode of Star Trek that I've ever, ever watched was that season six of The Next Generation, Ship in a Bottle. And you were talking yeah. about AI there and so many things. I mean, first of all, Moriarty, A, was holding the Enterprise hostage. So you were talking <laughs> about the threat of AI. But there's one point when he wants to beam off the holodeck. And I'm sure you laughed out loud when he said, all we have to do is decouple the Heisenberg compensators for, the, <laughs> for matter to it. I actually quite like that. It's very clever. I thought, are the writers trolling us there? Or is that a hyper... Uh, in you know reference like you could just have a heisenberg competitor but one of the things no. that stuck with me for years is what he said he he said i accept i'm a fictional character and i was fashioned to love the countess bartholomew but i confess captain i would love her anyway i mean that level of self-awareness from an mm -hmm. ai um was just blew my mind are we getting to that level well i don't think we're at that level anywhere near that level right now uh, but i think it's an i don't I, I was going to say it's inevitable we'll get there. I, I don't know if it's inevitable, but I think it's not unlikely that we might get there eventually. I don't think we're anywhere near as close as some people worry about right now. I don't think chat GPT-4 understands what it's doing. It's it's following a set of algorithms, but but in any case... Uh, so is a crocodile. Mining. But, but uh, you know, I have a, actually have a T-shirt that I got from a bookstore that when I was giving a book talk there once called, you know, and it says fictional character, which I like to wear because, um, I mean... You know, in some sense, we all are fictional characters getting back to consciousness. We are all characters of our own creation. We all imagine ourselves to be something which we may not be to other people. And even ourself, the fact we imagine ourselves may be an illusion. 
the, you uh, know, the so-called the, the, Mandela effect. We're not even the yeah, subject yeah. of our memories because they're false. Yeah, but, you know, but once again, I come back to what it's a nice way to sort of finish this off. I assume we're getting close to it, but it is going back to time again. Maybe self is an illusion. Maybe time is an illusion. But I think saying that doesn't add any anything because time may be an illusion. But as I say, if you're late for your train, it, it, it doesn't make much difference. Self may be an illusion, but if you're kicked in the shins or jilted by a lover, telling you that self is an illusion isn't going to mean much, mean much to you. So it's an illusion, but to understand if it is an illusion, the important question is, how does that illusion arise? And that's really the, the interesting question. And that's a question, of course, we don't have the answer to. What's next for you? Like you've, you've, you've done this for decades. Are you going to carry on? Uh, do you envisage a change? I'd love you to carry on. That's not a loaded question. Um, and also, are you more optimistic now as a person or than you were, say, 20, 20 years ago? I mean, there's this cliche that everyone becomes a little bit more curmudgeonly as they get older. I still sense that sense of wonder in, in you. Is, is that something that that is jading you a little bit as these religious fundamentalists and the politics? and people who just seem to be anti-science, you know, constantly attacking you. One of my favorite sentences, I kind of think of it as a mantra, as someone, something I learned from a friend of mine, the great writer Cormac McCarthy, who I first met a bunch of years ago, and he's written very dark novels. Oh, I, I reread re The Road the other day. And yeah, I was The Road is a, a book that I, I could only read five oh, pages at a time. It was it so difficult. It makes you sick. Difficult. Genuinely sick. sick to your stomachs. And, stomach. and and I and I met him and he was such a cheerful guy. And I looked at him and said, How could he, he not so read his books? <laughs> and, and he said, and he said, he said to me something that stuck with me ever since. He said, Well, I'm a pessimist, but that's no reason to be gloomy. <laughs> and I think well, I that's like that. that that characterizes me to some extent. I'm not always a pessimist, but 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 I recognize the problems and there are severe ones. And um and I don't necessarily hold out great hope for humanity, although I don't think it, you know its end is is necessarily imminent in any way. I I am maybe an eternal optimist in that sense, but even with the rational part of me recognizing that optimism may be misplaced, I'm not gloomy about it. I think I'm still enjoying the exciting moment in the sun, no matter what the future brings. The incredible good fortune of having a cognition of being able to be around at a time when so many exciting things are are being learned about and that's true probably in a time and very way every every moment we're learning new things and we, all of us may have thought we live at the most exciting time in the history of the world so for me it's it's just a motivation the future may be miserable but it may, it doesn't make the present any less exciting or awe, awe inspiring or wonderful and i think that's that's what guides me more than anything i think as i get older i may i may become more cudgelly. I wonder whether it's a property of being old, but I look around and I see things that seem to be trends that are bad, but I recognize that, you know, that I like, I like history and I recognize one has to have historical perspective. So yeah, I'm not optimistic. Um, um, I may be a little pessimistic, but that doesn't affect the fact that, that, that doesn't stop me from waking up every day and, and having joy with the moment and, and, in the good in the good moments, I'm, I'm like anyone. I get depressed, but but when I'm thinking rationally, how lucky am I to be around and to be a, and to know that I'm around? That's just a, a gift that nature's given me that I I can't I I feel like I can't or shouldn't squander, and and that relates to my my the, your other question, my own future. Um, I like to think I don't know what I'll be doing in three years. I used to before I retired from academic career, I had grants, government grants, and I used to apply for government grants and you do that by lying because you have to talk about what you're planning to do in the next three years for your three-year grant and i did it always knowing that if i knew what i was doing three years from now then things weren't going very well because you know if things if science is going well in three years i should be doing something i had no idea about right now and i like to think of that about my own future that doesn't mean i don't plan and i, I will say that my next book i've already um begun to prepare for it is actually quite different. And it's going back 50 years in my life to a time when I when I actually studied Canadian history and I spent a year away from school researching, a, getting the necessary material to research a book. And, and, and I put it aside to become a physicist. So I'm going to, and, I, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this for my 70th birthday next year, by then I'll be well in the way, I hope, of finishing a, a, a book that I, I I promised a teacher of mine 50 years ago that I'd write a, a history book. So that's the next book. What, what Beyond that, we'll see. 
How do people buy the current book? How do they follow your work? What's your website address? And tell us very briefly, what are your plans to visit uh, His Majesty's Shores in the next couple of weeks? Yes, my king, since I live in Canada now, he's my king. The book, in principle, you should be able to get it anywhere. In England, uh, it's known as the known unknowns, as you point out. And I'm happy to say that I think it will get review attention and publicity enough that it'll be carried by major bookstores. I'm not sure that'll be the case in the United States, to tell you the truth. But in England, I have great confidence in my publishers and, and the interest that's occurred so far. But of course, you can also get it online from any of the standard online from Amazon or, or any of the online realtors. And it exists in three different forms, in the hardcover, as an ebook, and also as an audiobook, which I narrated. And so uh, in principle, you can you can get it in any of those ways. I've bought all three. And you can look at my own links, either my Twitter links where I talk about it all the time. My Twitter's lkraus1, or my personal uh, website, which is lawrencemkraus.com, or the, the Substack site, Critical Mass, which I now use for our podcast and, and much of my writing, um, gives links as well. And that's, uh, that's lawrencekraus.substack.com. They're called Critical Mass. So those are three ways you can look for me. I'm also on Facebook, but but Lawrence Cross, we try, which is up a site we're upgrading, is try, tries to list the upcoming events I'm doing and all the things that it's got, all the things I've written and and links to videos. And the next uh, major event, uh, next major public event, will be in June. I'm going to be at the Hay Festival, which is a lovely book festival, one of my favorite book festivals in the world. I've done it once before in Wales, and I'll be there June 2nd. They're actually June 2nd and 3rd, but I'll be doing an event in the evening of June 2nd. It's a beautiful place to go. And if you haven't visited it, I highly recommend. And then June 4th, I'll be back in London at an event with my old friend Richard Dawkins at the Tabernacle. It's an event being um, organized by my own foundation, the Origins Project Foundation and Atheist UK. And I just tweeted a link to where you can get tickets for that. And it's uh, June 4th during the day. Be me and Richard, and I shouldn't cut short, there'll be a bunch of other uh, great speakers and scientists. And so it's an all day event. And, and I, I, at the end of it, I understand there'll be an auction for a beautiful hand, uh, oil painting of Christopher Hitchens that was done. So, so I hope to see some of you, some of you there or at the Hay yeah, Festival. I'll be there. Uh, Lawrence, I've been doing this for five and a half years, this podcast every week. This was one of the most enjoyable ones I've ever done. And I knew it would be before we even started. Thank you okay. ever so much for your time. Thanks. The questions were great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.